From the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery, I'm Josh Young, and this is As Seen From Here. On today's podcast, TAS. And at the same time, there were TAS cases reported pretty much all over, the, especially the eastern United States, and these were also being reported to the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. First this. As seen from here reaches ophthalmologists in 98 countries, transfers more than half a terabit of podcasts every month, but the potential audience is much larger. Please tell your colleagues about this free resource, Flattening the Ophthalmic World. And while you're at it, let your residents and fellows know about Open Ophthalmology, a free basic science video podcast, already a force in ophthalmic education with 1,800 viewers watching 6,000 video lectures every month. Information wants to be free. Help me give it away. Connecting a series of disparate events, tracing them back to a common source, and neutralizing the problem. An episode of 24? CSI ophthalmology? The Jack Bauer of this drama is Nick Mamelis. I'm going to let him set the stage. Nick Mamelis, welcome to a scene from here. Nick, what is TAS? Well, TAS uh, stands for Toxic Anterior Segment Syndrome, and it is a term that, that actually uh, my fellow and I coined many years ago. I think it was about 1990. And what it is is it's a sterile, acute anterior segment inflammation following uh, usually uncomplicated cataract or anterior segment surgery. Nick, how does TAS typically present? The usual present, uh, presenting uh, findings are blurred vision, a marked increase in inflammation in the anterior chamber of the eye, including uh, increased cell and flare, but also even hypopion formation or fibrin formation. And specifically, when you look at the patient, they will have diffuse corneal edema. Nick, what sort of anterior segment damage do we see as a sequela of TAS? Well, a lot of the damage depends on the severity of the insult that causes the TAS in the first place. And if you have a severe enough insult to cause the TAS, what you can end up with is you can end up with significant permanent corneal edema. And what's interesting with the corneal edema in TAS is it's not uncommon that we'll see corneal edema after just routine surgery, but it'll be focal, whereas the corneal edema that you see in TAS is a very diffuse corneal edema. And in fact, it's been coined limbus to limbus edema. It's basically from one end of the cornea to the other. And in mild cases of TAS where the uh, insult is not severe, the cornea will eventually clear. But in severe cases, patients can be left with permanent corneal edema and even requiring cornea transplants to treat that. Now, the inflammation will often calm down with, with aggressive treatment, but sometimes if it's, again, a severe insult, you can end up with the sequelae of chronic inflammation, such as chronic cystoid macular edema, synechia, problems with... Uh, glaucoma, if the, if the insult has affected the trabecular meshwork, you can get a very difficult to treat glaucoma that can sometimes even require such things as a valve in order to try to keep the pressure down if the insult's severe enough. How is TAS generally treated? It's usually treated with intense topical cortical steroids. And so we recommend if you're, if you're thinking that your patient has TAS to use hourly predforte, you know, prednisolone acetate on an hourly basis. Prior to your study, what was known about the etiology of TAS? 
Well, what we found is that TAS is multifactorial. There are a long list of potential factors that can cause TAS, from um, incorrect medications put in the eye, uh, residual materials left in instruments such as uh, OVD, such as cortex, uh, problems with the cleaning and sterilization of instruments, uh, difficulties with enzyme detergent residues. We've even found problems with, with water that, that has uh, heavy metals in it and problems with anything that is used in the conjunction with the cleaning of the instruments. Nick, usually at this point in the interview, I'll ask the author to describe the design of his or her study. But in this case, there's a whole narrative. Uh, Can I get you to tell me about it? Well, this is a very interesting story because it's almost like the CSI television show you see, which is, is, by the way, made my job very difficult because now the doctors think that we have a CSI lab here and that they send us specimens and we can magically ascertain what's going on with them, which unfortunately we can't do. But um, how this played out was in the fall of 2005, the reported cases of TAS to our center increased markedly. And at the same time, there were TAS cases reported pretty much all over, the, especially the eastern United States, and these were also being reported to the Centers for Disease Control, the CDC. When we look at particular TAS outbreaks, what we try to do is we try to find out exactly which medications were used, how the instruments were sterilized, and try to come up with a potential list of common factors. And what was interesting about this particular outbreak is when we were looking at the various centers that were scattered throughout uh, the East Coast, it turned out there were seven centers in this particular study, but there were many more at the same time involved in the outbreak that were not uh, reported in this study. Um, When we were analyzing the particular cases and we found that there was a very common factor with these, it was the fact that uh, the majority of these cases, in fact, almost 90% of the patients in here had a single uh, type of of BSS that was used. And it turned out it was uh, branded Endosol. It was an AMO brand Endosol, but it was actually manufactured by uh, Cytosol Laboratories. And the reason that this is important is it's, it's uncommon when we find outbreaks of tests that we find a single factor. And in this case, it turned out that the vast majority of the patients who had tests in this outbreak received this particular product. Nick, was the inciting agent that was associated with the test identified in that product? Yes. When the, when the CDC uh, went ahead and was working with us to, to dig into this further, um, what we tried to do was to get um, batches of BSS that were from the same lots that were used in the actual cases. And so because TAS occurs the next day, the actual bottles of BSS that are used are discarded at the end of the surgery. They're not saved. But what we can do is track down the specific lot numbers that were used and then pull bottles from the same lot that was manufactured and then analyze the bottles. And when this analysis was done at the CDC, what they found was that there were uh, levels of endotoxin exceeding the uh, allowed limit. The allowed limit is is uh, 0.5 EU per ml of the units. And so what we found was that of the solution lots that were analyzed, um, greater than a third of these were showing endotoxin levels well above the allowed limit. Was the source of the endotoxin ever identified? Uh, to my knowledge, it, it was not. 
we were never able to, to find that. And I'm not sure if the manufacturer was able to find that or not. I'm not privy to that information. Presumably, many patients were exposed to this endotoxin with no untoward effect. Why do you think this is, that, that many patients, probably most patients, tolerated this just fine? And, you know, that, that's the, the main question that, that we don't have an answer to because what, what we're theorizing, this is strictly theorizing, is that um, somehow there was endotoxin contamination in the manufacturing process of the BSS. And all we can say is that the endotoxin was not evenly distributed in the BSS as the BSS is eventually bottled and packaged and then um, sold. And so what we can theorize is that that endotoxin uh, was not uniformly distributed throughout all the BSS and there was just some bottles or some lots where it was particularly concentrated and the vast majority probably did not have any in them or had such a low level that it did not cause any uh, particular past symptoms. Or potentially that one subgroup of patients may have been more sensitive to the endotoxin than another subgroup of patients. But were there any differences in the patient populations between those who got TAS and those who didn't? No, we did not find differences in the patients who were affected by this. And it just seemed like they clustered in particular centers, which was interesting. There were centers along the East Coast where this clustered. And again, we just don't know if, if the particular lots that had more endotoxin in them were distributed to these places or not. So at this point, it's strictly theorizing exactly what's going on. Nick, isn't the product tested for endotoxin by the manufacturer before it's distributed? It is. It is indeed, but it is not every bottle that is particularly tested. It's large lots that are tested. Nick, there are two industry standards for endotoxin testing. Can I get you to talk a little bit about them? Sure, sure. And and again, I'm certainly not an expert on the testing for endotoxins, but the standard test that's used now is the LAL test. It's the limulase assay um, test. And um, this is the test that is standard by the industry, and it's it's the standardized test that's used, and that's where we get the 0.5 EU per ml limit. Now, as people are looking further into this, it turns out that this may not be the most sensitive or the most accurate way to test for this, and there are now other methods, other assays that are available that we're finding are more sensitive looking for endotoxin levels. But again, in all fairness, this this is the standard, and this was what was followed. The company did follow the standard testing methods. Nick, how has the maximum tolerable level of endotoxin been determined? Well, this was determined many, many years ago because this was really the level of sophistication of the testing that was available at the time, and they couldn't get much lower than that or much much smaller than that in terms of making accurate testing. At the moment, the um, testing bodies that are the bodies that decide what the levels will be, not only you know for industry but with ophthalmologists involved also, and the FDA's involvement are now pushing to actually get this level lowered. And so I think we may see in the future the level of lowest acceptable endotoxin to be decreased from 0.5 to actually um, 0.0125, and so it will actually be decreased to. Uh, a fourth of what it is right now. Nick, I assume that the affected lots of this product are not still in circulation. As these findings became uh, available uh, from the testing that was done at the CDC, the CDC, in conjunction with the FDA and our center, um, worked with the manufacturer 
to announce a recall of these products and their various different brands of the products that were manufactured at this, uh, this facility for Cytosol. And so what happened was that there was a, an official recall announced. And uh, although this went out in December, I believe the official recall was in January of 2006, but it was announced in December. The recall was January. And these products were then completely recalled from the market. And although the manufacturer had followed the uh, recommendations and did not show any endotoxin contamination that was reported, you know, there was certainly the, the contamination that was found in the uh, lots that the CDC had tested. Now, what was, what was uh, interesting is after this recall, the outbreak of TAS dissipated. And what we found is that the reported TAS cases to our center dropped down to what we call baseline level. And by baseline, I mean our center has been looking at cases of TAS now for 18 years, and we will receive several reports, either phone calls or, or emails, of particular centers uh, or surgeons that are having difficulties with TAS, but we did not have a large outbreak as was going on in the fall of 2005 following the recall of this product. Nick, in light of your findings, uh, both in terms of this episode and, and generally, what do you think we as cataract surgeons should be doing? You know, I think that the main thing that we need to do is to make sure that not only surgeons, but that their operating room staff in general are aware of what TAS is and aware of what we can do to try to prevent TAS. And I think what we found through the years is, unfortunately, unless a particular outbreak of TAS affects you or affects your center, a lot of surgeons are still unaware of the existence of this problem in general. And certainly nurses and uh, the staff that's involved in the, in the preparation of the instruments and in the cleaning of instruments are completely unaware of this issue. And so I think it's very important for, for us as a community to be well-educated on the potential issues involving TAS and potential ways to prevent these from occurring. And so I think as surgeons, we need to be proactive, be aware of this entity, and be aware of how we can keep this from occurring in our own patients. Nick, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Okay. I always want to, to make sure that surgeons are aware that although in this particular outbreak we found a particular product, it was withdrawn and the outbreak dissipated, there are still ongoing cases of TAS. And our center has been funded through the ASCRS to act as a clearinghouse for these uh, TAS cases. And we are still receiving either phone calls or emails from uh, surgeons and surgical centers that are having difficulties with TAS. And so I want to let the um, you know people who are uh, involved in these podcasts or the people who are listening to this be aware that there is this resource available. It's available through the ASCRS and through the ASCRS's website. And we have created a series of questionnaires regarding products that are used in surgery and regarding how instruments are cleaned in order to help surgeons and surgical centers, if they have tasks, to track down the potential causes. And so this is still an ongoing study, and the resources are still available uh, through the ASCRS, through their website. Nick Mamelis, thank you so much. You bet. Good talking with you. Nick Mamelis is editor of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery and professor of ophthalmology at the John A. Moran Eye Center at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City, Utah. His paper, 
multi-state outbreak of toxic anterior segment syndrome 2005 appears in the April 2008 issue of the Journal of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Ask questions of Dr. Mamlis or any of our previous guests or make a comment about any of the topics we've discussed. These interviews are meant to be the start of a conversation in which you participate. Call our listener response lines in the United States dial area code 646-808-0231. In the United Kingdom dial 020-7558-8275 or Skype JYoungMD. As Seen From Here is a production of the American Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgery. Be a part of the next podcast. I'm Josh Young.